John chapter 3 and Ezekiel 36. We'll get to Ezekiel in a little bit. Every individual, no matter their social standing or religious status or ethnic pedigree or national origin or knowledge of Scripture, must come to a place where they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Or you could say plainly, everyone, in order to receive eternal life, every individual must be born again, as we will see this morning. In our last message in John, in John chapter 2, remember the setting. Jesus goes to the temple, and there in the temple, he's not happy with what he sees. He's there in the court of the Gentiles. And in the court of the Gentiles, you have people who are selling animals for sacrifice. You have money changers there who are charging exorbitant exchange rates, and they're really ripping off the traveling worshipers. And so the court of the Gentiles, which was intended to be a place where non-Jews could come to worship the God of heaven. They could come, those proselytes could come into the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus says in another gospel, after driving out all the money changers and driving out those who were selling the animals and holding the court so that nobody could walk through the temple, that amazing show of authority, he says, my father's house is a house of prayer. My father's house is a house of prayer for all nations. And you've made it a den of robbers, a den of thieves. Jesus then holds the temple with authority. Doesn't allow anybody to come or go. And now you can understand how Jesus' actions would have upset some very important people. There in the temple, uh, the temple was governed by, the operated by a party called the Sadducees. We're going to learn about them in a second. There's another party that was part of Israel's governing council called the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They both would have been upset with Jesus' actions because Jesus was claiming authority over what appropriate worship was, and that would have been the realm of the Pharisees. Jesus drove out the money changers and those merchants, and that money would have gone to the pockets of the Sadducees. And so now he's upset both parties. And so... Members of that Jewish governing council belonging to the Pharisees and the Sadducees come and they approach Jesus and they say, why have you done this? Prove to us that you have the authority to do this. Well, a little bit about the Sadducees and the Pharisees before we get into John 3. The Sadducees were the wealthy elites, the social elites. They are that uh, aristocratic class, the politically connected. The, the Sadducees, from their political Part, or their religious party came the high priests. They held authority over the temple and its operations. The Sadducees aligned with Rome, and they would really do Rome's bidding, and whatever Rome's interests were, uh, they would seek to bring those interests to pass among the people. Theologically, the Sadducees denied the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They adhered to the law, but they rejected the, uh, uh, the oral traditions that the Pharisees uh, held to so strongly. The Sadducees made up the majority of the governing council of the Jews. There's probably three times as many Sadducees as there were Pharisees. And so they're greatly disturbed by any movement that seems to be a threat to their authority. 
And uh, this new Jesus movement would have been one of those threats. On the other hand, you have the Pharisees. Now, this is important because we're going to meet somebody this morning who is a Pharisee. The Pharisees, on the other hand, uh, though there were some wealthy and some influential, generally, this is like among the laity. These are those who are not as financially prominent or socially prominent. The Pharisees, though unhappy with Roman rule, had learned how to go along to get along. Partly because in the past there had been some uprising that the Pharisees had taken part in, and really their revolt got quashed, and they just kind of learned to get along, uh, even though they were unhappy with Roman rule. Theologically, the Pharisees, in contrast to the Sadducees, they did believe in the resurrection. They looked forward to the physical resurrection, the literal resurrection. They uh, believed there was an afterlife, whereas the Sadducees did not. The Pharisees, though, held to the strict observance of the law, but beyond the law. The Pharisees were known to have, the term often used is they would erect a fence around the law. What we mean by that is not only would they obey the law, but they'd come up with their own man-made traditions. Their own man-made traditions, and they would, they would obey those, tra- uh, those traditions and really elevate them to that level of commandment. So these man-made traditions now became as, uh, as important as God's commands, and violation of their traditions became as serious an offense as violating the commandments of God. So they're traditionalists, elevating human tradition on par with divine commandments. Now, although the Pharisees were the minority, they were highly influential among the common people. Josephus says this of the Sadducees and Pharisees, The Sadducees have the confidence of the wealthy alone, but no following among the populace, while the Pharisees have the support of the masses. And so the Pharisees would run the synagogues, for instance. And so they really had the influence right there in the, in the crowds of people. And so whether Pharisee or Sadducee, both of these parties, uh, along with the predominant religious thought of Jesus' day, would affirm that all Jews, whether Pharisee or Sadducee, all Jews, apart from those guilty of apostasy or some extraordinary wickedness, all Jews would be permitted to enter the kingdom of God just by virtue of their Jewishness. And so they would agree on that. Well, you can understand how Jesus going into the temple and driving out the merchants and claiming authority would have upset both of these groups. And so they come to Jesus in John 2, and they ask him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Prove to us you have the authority to exercise this power here. And uh, Jesus responds very strangely. If you didn't hear that sermon, go back two weeks, you can listen to it. Really what he does is he foretells his death and resurrection and claims that he has authority over the temple because he will replace the temple. Well, it appears from the context, especially John 2.23, and you can look at that, Jesus then, after being questioned by the Jews who say, show us some sign that you have the authority to do this, he doesn't do a sign for them. He simply alludes to his death and resurrection, says he's going to replace the temple. But he does go on to do some signs. Not for them, but he does signs on behalf of the people. And so John 2.23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And so he did go on to do some miracles there in Jerusalem, but not at the behest of these Jewish leaders. And so many there then believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. They believed that he was the one sent from God when they saw his miracles. And this to us might seem like a wonderful success. Well, there you go. Jesus comes into town, does miracles, and many believed. Mission accomplished. But look at what John says next in John 2.24. 
But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people. And he did no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What does that mean? Jesus understood that sometimes faith on the basis of signs alone is a fleeting faith. It is a fickle faith. Have you ever had somebody say to you, well, if God's real, why didn't you show me a sign? Lord, I will believe in you if you'll just show me a sign. Well, Jesus knows better. He knows that that kind of faith is a fickle faith. That type of faith is a faith that never matures. It never fully trusts. It always requires some other proof, some other evidence, some other sign. And really what it, did, what it does is it causes a situation where God must continually prove himself to us. And so Jesus understood what this kind of faith was. And so it says he didn't entrust himself to those men at that moment. He knows what's in man. And then what John does, John the Apostle, coming into John 3, is he gives us an example of a man who was that type of person, who upon seeing the signs of Jesus is beginning to wonder, maybe he's the one. Maybe I should put my faith in him. And this man's name was Nicodemus, as we're going to see. And so, in John 3, we're going to see a man named Nicodemus who stood out from among the Pharisees uh, in that he was a wealthy man, a man of, he's well-known. In fact, John 3 is going to tell us that he's a chief teacher among the Jews. He teaches the law. Not just the law, but he also teaches the tradition of the elders. And he's personally a meticulous keeper of the, of the law. And so, in this exchange that we're about to see, Jesus is going to show Nicodemus, this man who's seen the miracles of Jesus, seen his authority in the temple. Jesus is going to show him that no matter your social standing, and no matter your religious status, and no matter your ethnic pedigree, no matter your ethnic origin, no matter your knowledge of the law, Everyone must come to a place where they place their faith in Jesus Christ, and in other words, must be born again. And so in John chapter 3, verse 1, this is our text for today. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you that... Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Stop there and say this morning, if you're not yet a Christian and you're wondering, How can I be born again? How can I be saved? How can I know that I'm going to see the kingdom of God? Then listen up. He continues, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
And so Nicodemus, this prominent teacher, comes to Jesus at night. Why at night? We don't really know. Speculation. He doesn't want anybody to know. Sure. Further speculation. Oftentimes, rabbis would discuss theology at night. So maybe that's a reason. Uh, Potentially also, uh, John is highlighting this because John has that emphasis of light and darkness all throughout his gospel. Uh, Bottom line is, Nicodemus comes at night to uh, meet Jesus. And look in verse 2. Nicodemus is greeting. Rabbi, nice respectful greeting, acknowledging that Jesus is a respected teacher. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs, that is, those miracles that you do, unless God is with him. And notice he says, we, we know. He's representing other members of the Jewish council, representing he and his disciples, perhaps, But there's some body of men there who have come to believe that Jesus at least is one who's sent from God. The question of authority posed after the temple cleansing seems to be answered in Nicodemus' mind. Show us some sign that you have authority to do this. Well, Nicodemus has come to that conclusion or beginning to come to that conclusion that Jesus does indeed have this authority. And so... Say, however, as we'll see from Jesus' response to Nicodemus, although Nicodemus was on the right track and beginning to see who Jesus was, he really remained under the veil of some misconceptions. There's some things still missing in Nicodemus' understanding of who Jesus is, and Jesus is going to help him clear these things up. Nicodemus still doesn't quite understand how one can attain eternal life. He doesn't yet understand uh, how one can be permitted to enter into the kingdom of God. When I say he doesn't understand, he has ideas, but he has his own ideas. He has ideas based upon tradition. But Jesus is going to show him from Scripture how one can know that they have eternal life. And what a great question for us this morning, right? We have all sorts of people here, some of us coming from different backgrounds, maybe different religious traditions and so on. And we may have a variety of opinions or understandings of what it means to have eternal life or how to be saved or how to know you're right with God or how to know you'll enter the kingdom of God. But the important question for us is what does Scripture say? And so Jesus is going to speak to Nicodemus, a man steeped in his religious system and religious tradition, and he's going to show him what he's missed in Scripture. This is going to be instructive for us. So look at how Jesus responds to Nicodemus in verse 3. Odd response. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, you must be a teacher come from God. And we know this because no, otherwise you wouldn't be able to do these signs. And Jesus' response is not, yes, I am sent from God. Yes, I am that one. He responds and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What's the connection? What a strange response. Nicodemus hasn't asked any questions. He's not mentioned the kingdom of God. All he said is, we think you've come from God. So why this response? Jesus knows what lies behind Nicodemus' question. What Nicodemus has not come out and, and said plainly is that he and those that he's representing are beginning to speculate that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Christ, the coming king that would sit on David's throne. So he broaches the subject gently with his talk of miracles. How did Jesus' miracles 
signal that perhaps he was the coming Messiah? How does miracles lead to talk about kingdom? Understand that when Jesus did miracles, what types of miracles were they? Not, oh, watch me levitate, (laughs) right? What are these miracles? They're miracles of allowing the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, raising the dead back to life. These are miracles of mercy. His miracles were signaling that he's the king who's going to usher in the kingdom because that future kingdom, that eternal kingdom, is that kingdom where there are no deaf and there are no blind and there are no sick and the dead uh, live. He's eradicating the effects of the curse of sin. And so Jesus' earthly miracles were little foretastes of that kingdom so that when others saw the miracles that Jesus performed, we think he's, he's the king. He's the king of David. He's bringing in the messianic kingdom. Uh, he's giving us a little taste of the things to come. So that's how miracles lead to talk of kingdom. And so Jesus responds, basically saying, Nicodemus, I know what you're thinking. You're wondering if I'm the promised one, the Messiah. You're speculating whether or not I am the promised son of David who would sit on the throne of David and reign over the kingdom of God. It's as if he's saying, Nicodemus, I also know that you're a Pharisee, a meticulous keeper of the law. And you feel that you are just going to skate right into the kingdom? You feel that you're a shoe-in, that you're going to be granted entrance? Does Nicodemus understand this? Talk about kingdom. You're seeing me as the one who's going to usher in the kingdom. You see yourself as one who's going to be granted access to that kingdom. He says to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will not see that kingdom. Shocking. Nicodemus is religious. Nicodemus is moral. Nicodemus knows the law. Nicodemus goes even beyond the law and even keeps uh, uh, tradition to, to keep him from getting anywhere near violating the law. And Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That kingdom of God where God will rule and reign over his new creation. That kingdom where peace and justice and righteousness will reign eternally. That kingdom where joy will overflow. That kingdom where sin will be eradicated Death will be defeated. That kingdom where suffering will finally be over. That kingdom where that that veil of sin will be rolled back finally. That everlasting kingdom which will exclude evil and only the righteous will inherit. That kingdom which every faithful Jew was waiting for with hopeful anticipation. That kingdom which would see the greater Son of God ascend to the throne of David and rule forever. That kingdom, Jesus says to Nicodemus, You can't enter in unless you're born again. Now look at Jesus' response in verse 4. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? I mean, common sense question. You must be born again. Uh, How can you be born? I'm an old man. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus doesn't know what to do with this. You say, that's a, come on, Nicodemus, you're smarter than that. You know Jesus isn't talking about crawling back into a womb. But Nicodemus just doesn't know what to do with it. He has no category for what Jesus is talking about. And so he just responds with like bald literalism. What do you mean? Well, look at Jesus' response in verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And you say, well, that clears it up. (laughs) And it helps at all. But there's a parallel here between verse 3 and 5. They're really saying the same thing. 
He's saying, unless you're born again, and then in verse 5, he elaborates, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, which is the same as being born again. He says, you cannot enter the kingdom of God in verse 5, which is the same as see the kingdom of God in verse 3. So they're just parallels. But then Jesus continues in verse 5 through 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Still not really clearing things up here, is it? Uh, And then Nicodemus again in verse 9. How can these things be? How can these things be? Nicodemus is not an uneducated man. Nicodemus is no slouch here. He's intelligent. He's educated. He knows the Scriptures. In fact, judging by Jesus' response to Nicodemus, Nicodemus should have understood everything Jesus just said on the basis of Nicodemus' knowledge of the Scripture. Because Jesus says, are you not the teacher of Israel? As a teacher of Israel, you know Israel's Scriptures. You should know this, Nicodemus. That's the point. So everything Jesus is saying here is coming from the Old Testament Scriptures. Hmm. That'll help us to understand what he's saying. And so Nicodemus, again, smart man, educated man, but he had some blind spots in his theology. He had missed something fundamental. Could it be that Nicodemus was blinded by his tradition? Have you been there? Reading scriptural truth over and over and over again and never being able to come to an understanding of what it plainly says because your tradition has blinded you to it? This is what happens when you have other people giving you a lens through which you read Scripture. And so every time you read those truths, you only interpret it according to what others have told you it says instead of what it plainly says. This is Nicodemus. We're going to see that illustrated in a minute. His tradition had blinded him. His self-righteousness had blinded him. Because we're going to see a text plainly in the Old Testament that says you need to be born again. You need new birth. You need to be cleansed of all your sin. But Nicodemus, reading that, would never see that as applying to himself. Well, not me. I'm a Jew. I'm a Pharisee. I keep the law and I keep the traditions. That doesn't apply to me. Blinded by his own self-righteousness, which, by the way, we can also be very guilty of. How many times have you come away from a Sunday and heard a sermon and you said, you know what, that was a really good sermon. When somebody else preaches, not me. But So that was a really good sermon. And you say, you know who that would have been good for? That's not how it works, right? He's blinded by his tradition. He's blinded by his self-righteousness. And I think he's blinded by his national identity. I'm a Jew, therefore I'm a child of God, and I'm going to inherit the kingdom of God by virtue of my ethnic and national identity. I think he's blinded by all these things which have kept him from reading the scripture for what it actually says, which is what we're going to see in just a second. And so the question for us is, where in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, is there talk of being born of water and being born of the spirit and the spirit connected to the movement of the wind? And where do we see things, all these things in connection to life and new beginning And and all of that somehow connected to talk of the kingdom of God. There's somewhere in the Old Testament where all of that comes together. Yes. Guess where? Ezekiel. Thank you. Ezekiel 36. So turn there. 
Ezekiel was a priest in Jerusalem from uh, when Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city in 605 B.C. And later again in 597 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar defeats the city and takes 10,000 captives to Babylon, Ezekiel was part of that captivity. What we're about to read was written by Ezekiel while he was in Babylon, five years into that captivity. God gives him a vision, and he writes this in Ezekiel 36 and 37. In chapter 36, the Lord grants Ezekiel a wonderful prophecy, looking forward to the day when God will relent of his judgment and would bring his people back out of Babylon and restore them to his land, to their land. And God, in, chapter, in the first 16 verses of chapter 36, talks about how he's going to renew the land itself. The land is going to blossom. It's going to be fertile, and it's going to provide for his people, and so on. So 16 verses talk about how he's going to renew the land. Then, in Ezekiel 36, verse 17 through 22, he explains why he will restore the people to his land. Now, this is significant. He makes it plain that he's going to restore his people who now have been in judgment because of the rebellion against him and their covenant unfaithfulness. They've been taken captive into Babylon. God's going to deliver them back out of Babylon, restore them to the land. But why? Because they've learned their lesson? Because now they become obedient covenant partners? No, that's not why. What God says in verse 17 through 22 of Ezekiel 36 is that he's going to restore them to their land in order to vindicate his own holiness. Their continual wickedness and the repeated punishments from the Lord and them being expelled from their land have caused others to look at them and and just scoff and to look at them with disdain. And really it caused others to begin to profane the name of God. Well, these are God's people? Really? What kind of God must this be if this is his people? And the Lord says, I'm going to vindicate my holiness. The Lord would restore them to their land and bless them beyond measure and do it in a way where it would become abundantly clear that had nothing to do with their worth. He was going to bless them to a degree that when they're in the land, they could never say, see what we deserve? See how obedient we are? That's why we have all these blessings? No, he's going to bless them in a way and he's going to do a work inside of them where it's very clearly his work, unilateral work on his part, blessing them beyond measure so that he'll receive all the glory. Look in Ezekiel 36, verse 23. I know this is a stretch for some of you. Spending some time in Ezekiel, but it's good to be stretched, right? Ezekiel 36, 23. The Lord says, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, in which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I'm going to regather you. I'm going to put you in your land. Vindicate my holiness. Okay. So what do we have here? A people who deserve to be in exile, who continually rebel against their covenant God, who repeatedly profane his name and so on, being put back in their land. So how does that vindicate God's holiness? You say, well, they're not... They're not, uh, they're not deserving of that. It seems like it does the opposite and seems to indicate that maybe God isn't just because now he's blessing a people who don't deserve the blessing. How does putting a sinful people back in the land which they continually defiled result in the vindication of God's holiness? Look at verse 25. This is something entirely new happening here. 
He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you should be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. The Lord here is promising more than a renewed land. What he's promising is that he is actually going to create a renewed people. The Lord will cleanse them of their sin and iniquity. Verse 25, look how he describes it. I will sprinkle clean water on you, that water of purification. And now all of a sudden we're beginning to see a connection between Ezekiel 36 and John 3. We're talking about the cleansing of water now. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And then in verse 33, it speaks of the cleansing from all their iniquities. The Lord will cleanse the people from their sin. What else will he do? Look in verse 26. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put within, a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. New heart, new spirit, the stubborn, rebellious, sinful, iniquitous heart will be removed. And it'll be replaced with a tender heart sensitive to the Lord. And God's going to do this. Now look at verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways, my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. And he says, you'll dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and so on. Now, all of a sudden, we have talk of cleansing from water. And we have talk of a new spirit. And we have a talk of God's spirit dwelling within people. And so now we have that language of water and spirit, just like in John 3. So to summarize, the Lord will bring his people into a renewed land. They will be cleansed of all their sin. They'll be given new hearts and new spirits. The Lord will put his own spirit within them and actually produce the obedience in them that they've been lacking. The unfaithfulness that led them to rebellion and captivity, God's actually going to take care of the root of the problem, which is their very sinful nature. And so God is actually going to himself unilaterally do a work where he changes them on the inside so that now they have his spirit and have the ability to obey him in a way they've never been able to before. That sounds a whole lot like a brand new birth, doesn't it? Now look at verse 35 of Ezekiel 36. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. God's making a new Eden. A new creation. Well, you know uh, who populates a new creation? A new people. And so he makes a renewed people for a renewed creation. If anyone would enter that land, that new Eden, they would first have to be sprinkled clean with water. They would have to have God's spirit put within them. In other words, if anybody is going to enter into that land, they must be born of water and the spirit. In other words, he must be born again. So is that it? Ezekiel 36, the passage that Jesus is alluding to and speaking to Nicodemus? That's the source of this language of born again, water, spirit, and so on? Partially. Remember John chapter 3, verse 8? Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We haven't seen anything in Ezekiel 36 about wind. Well... Look at Ezekiel 37. 
In Ezekiel 37, the Lord gives Ezekiel another vision. And he sees this valley and it's full of dead bones, skeletons, dry skeletons. And there's a massive amount of them. It's like an entire army went in there and died, decomposed. And now you have this dry uh, valley full of dead bones. The Lord tells Ezekiel to preach to those bones, those dead bones. Thankfully, it's never like that preaching here at Calvary, right? Sometimes there's dead stairs, but that's it. Ezekiel 37, thus says the Lord God to the... Thus, this is Ezekiel preaching to the bones. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so Ezekiel preaches that message to these bones. And then the bones come to life. I mean, just the bones, like a living skeleton. But then sinew appears, and then muscle appears, and then skin appears. And so now you have bodies, fully formed bodies, but there's still no life in them. And so, Ezekiel 37, 9, the Lord says to Ezekiel, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so now we have Breath, wind, the breath coming from the four winds and entering the bodies. This is reminiscent of God breathing life into the nostrils of Adam. And again, we have that language of creation, a new creation. So now we have wind, just as Jesus spoke about in John 3. But is this wind connected to the spirit? I mean, it says wind and breath. Where's the spirit of God in all of this? Well, God describes what's going to happen, what this vision entails in Ezekiel 37, 14. He says, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you'll know that I am the Lord. I've spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. Yeah, the breath, the wind is representative of the spirit. That wind blows, and it's going to come upon these dead bones, and they're going to live. And the Lord is saying, that's exactly what I'm going to do when I make a new people. The Spirit is going to come, and it's going to descend upon some, and the Spirit's going to bring life. And just like wind, you know, you can't see wind, but you can see the effects of wind. Like the Spirit of God, you cannot see the Spirit, but when the Spirit does His work, you can see the evidence of the work of the Spirit, and that's true of anybody who's born again, right? If you have the Spirit inside of you, there are uh, evidences, right? And so Jesus says, like the wind, you don't know where it's coming from, you don't know where it's going, you can't see it, uh, but you can see its effects. And so the Spirit is coming to bring new life to God's people, that's the point. This new life will include a new heart, a new spirit, and the spirit of God himself dwelling inside the people. That's the creation of a new people for a new creation, for a new Eden. And no one will enter into that land who has not yet experienced that new birth. But now, remember Jesus' reply to Nicodemus. When when Nicodemus mentioned uh, the signs. Jesus responds to Nicodemus and says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So that's our next question. I think we found the text, right? I think we found in Ezekiel 36 and 37 the text from which Jesus is drawing all of this imagery as he talks to, to, to Nicodemus. 
We found the text that Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, listen, as a teacher of Israel, you should know these things. But where's talk of kingdom? Where's talk of kingdom? We've seen water, we've seen spirit, we've seen uh, wind, but where's the talk of kingdom? How can Jesus legitimately then jump from signs to kingdom, and how that, how's that connected to all this language? Well, Ezekiel 37, verse 22. After giving a further promise that the future would see a united kingdom, the Lord says in Ezekiel 37, 22, and I will make them one nation, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And you say, okay, so that must be what God did after the exile, brings the Jews out of Babylon, and then that's a description of, well, no, because there was not a united kingdom. The ten tribes were still lost and so on. That didn't happen. Uh, this is looking forward to something else, and we see that in verse 24. He says, my servant David shall be king over them. And if you're not familiar with Scripture or biblical history, David is long dead. But he says, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. This is talking about something more than just an earthly temporary kingdom. This is talking about some kingdom that's going to be established and is going to last forever. And who's going to rule and reign over that? The son of David. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus Christ. And so now we have the connection to kingdom. Spiritual birth, cleansed of water, God's spirit put inside of you like the wind coming. The spirit's going to come and bring life. And that will be necessary for any who would enter into that eternal kingdom over which the son of David, the Messiah, would rule and reign. It's all there. Nicodemus, it's all there in Ezekiel 36 and 37. So who's going to enter that kingdom? Those who have been cleansed of all their sin. A cleansing compared to the sprinkling of pure water. Not, those, uh, not just those who have been cleansed of all their sin, as by pure water, but those who have received a new heart and a new spirit, those who have been made entirely new on the inside. And now you hear, you're here this morning, and you're saying, okay, so how do I have that? How can I have that happen to me? <laughs> that sounds like an impossibility. How can anyone have their sin cleansed and be made entirely new on the inside? Well, according to Ezekiel, the Spirit of God will come like breath from the four winds and will produce that life. Okay. We'll explain how one can be assured that that new life comes to them in just a minute. So the question is, could Nicodemus have known this? Yeah, Nicodemus could have known this. Could Nicodemus Nicodemus have understood the need for that type of spiritual renewal to enter the kingdom? Yeah, he could have known it. Why didn't Nicodemus know it? A couple suggestions. Touching back on some things we've already said. I think that Nicodemus' ignorance here is rooted in him being steeped in human tradition. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus may have allowed himself to interpret Scripture through the lens of religious tradition. 
instead of religious tradition being interpreted through the lens of Scripture. And this is really what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Like, whatever conception you have about the kingdom and who enters in, it needs to bow the knee to Scripture. It needs, it needs to be filtered through the Word of God and not the Word of God being filtered through your tradition. And so, Ezekiel may have spent hours poring over passages like Ezekiel, and Nicodemus may have spent hours poring over passages like Ezekiel 36 and 37 and never actually saw what it says because he's been tainted by the filter of his tradition. Next of all, Nicodemus, I think, I think his ignorance was the result of his own self-righteousness, as we've already touched upon. Certainly, he doesn't need new birth. He doesn't need that cleansing. Sure, it might happen on a national level, according to Ezekiel, but me personally, I think I'm good to go. I'm a shoe in to the kingdom. Others are sinners, but not myself, and so he's just not going to apply that to himself. And then I think that he's also blinded by his ethnic pride as well, uh, as a Jew thinking that all Jews are going to enter in. So whether it's adherence to tradition or trust in his own goodness, what we all need to realize is that no one enters that kingdom unless they're born again. So here's the question, and we're going to close here eventually. Uh, How can one be born again? How can one be born again? Look in John chapter 3, verse 9. We're done with Ezekiel. John chapter 3, verse 9. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, if you have not grasped the basics of the new birth and what must happen for you to enter the kingdom of God, you're never going to be able to understand if I were to share greater spiritual truth with you. And he's saying, I could share greater spiritual truth with you because I am the one who's actually ascended from the Father. I'm the one who actually has ascended from heaven or descended from heaven. And so I could share deeper truth with you, Nicodemus, but you're not ready. You don't even have the awareness to understand the very earthly conception of spiritual new birth that's necessary to enter the kingdom. So then Jesus then brings the discussion, again, back down to earth here in verse 14. And this is hard. This is hard because we're at the end here, and Jesus shifts gears, but this is necessary in in order to understand how to be born again. But Jesus now seems to change the subject. Just out of nowhere, he starts talking about Moses in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And with that, now Jesus is showing Nicodemus. This is how one becomes born again. This is how one can know that they are one upon whom the Spirit descends. This is how one can know that they can have a new heart and God's Spirit put inside of him. So Jesus is showing now how we can be born again. And now... And I know you're at a disadvantage this morning if you're not familiar with Scripture, if you don't know what this is alluding to. We just don't have time. But the story in Numbers chapter 21, the Jews were judged. God sent fiery serpents, and in order for them to be delivered from that judgment, God had Moses make a, a, a bronze rod, and it had a bronze serpent over it. And, and what God said is, any who look upon that serpent will be delivered from that judgment. 
really strange picture, but this shows you the unity of Scripture because all the way back in Numbers 21, God was giving an object lesson looking forward to the day when his own son would be hoisted high upon a cross so that all who look upon the son believing in him by faith will be saved from judgment and ultimately would be born again. So, Jesus here is saying, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man, that's a reference to himself, I will be lifted up. That's the cross. And just as some looked upon the serpent and believed by faith that they'd be delivered, so those who look at me and believe uh, will have eternal life. That's how you can be born again. Now, here's a question. We're going to end here. I already said that a couple times. Is this promise then for Jews only? You're here this morning, and I don't know your ethnic background or whatever, and you're saying, well, this is really Jewish here today. Is it Calvary Baptist Church? Okay, this is not a synagogue, right? Uh, is this promise just for Jews only? Not at all. The promises to Ezekiel seem to be in reference to Jews only. God is talking to Ezekiel to national Israel. I'm going to restore you, right, among all the nations. It seems national. There's a reason, though, why I think Jesus switches gears here and now begins to talk about Moses and the serpent and so on. I think what he's doing here is he's not only eliminating Nicodemus's uh, blindness because of tradition and blindness because of self-righteousness, but I think he's also eliminating his blindness due to ethnic pride. Because Nicodemus would have been familiar with a very well-known passage, uh, another very well-known passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah 52 and 53. And if you're familiar with Isaiah 52 and 53, you understand that that's that servant song that is that prediction hundreds of years before Jesus' birth that gives us explicit description of the crucifixion. But in Isaiah chapter 52, that passage starts this way. And it's really going to foretell in vivid detail the crucifixion of the Lord's servant and even showing us that his crucifixion will be a substitutionary death or a substitutionary atonement in our place. But the passage starts this way in Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. Sounds like Moses in that rod with the serpent. He's going to lift up that rod, right? And you say, well, high and lifted up sounds like exaltation. He's going to be exalted, high and lifted up. Well, that's true. That's true. But look at how this servant in Isaiah 52 is going to be high and lifted up and exalted in verse 14 of Isaiah 52. It'll be on the screen. As as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. This servant in Isaiah 52 is going to be high and lifted up. How? Through disfigurement. Something happening to this servant that renders him unrecognizable as a person? That's what it says. This servant is going to be high and lifted up. People are going to look and they're going to be astonished at his appearance because he's marred beyond human resemblance. That's a very strange way to be high and lifted up or to be exalted. But that's exactly what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. But what's the result of Jesus being high and lifted up? Look in Isaiah 52, 15. So shall he sprinkle, sprinkle, where have you heard that before? The cleansing of water from Ezekiel and that cleansing of water from John 3. So shall he sprinkle, and who's he going to sprinkle? Jews only. So he shall sprinkle many nations. 
Jesus just destroyed Nicodemus' ethnic pride by alluding to that servant song in Isaiah 52. Just as Moses lifted up the rod with the serpent and all those who looked upon him would believe, so the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. And all who look at him will uh, be saved. All who look at him will have eternal life. And that includes all nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Kings of all nations are going to say, a Jewish Messiah lifted up on a cross, and that's how one can have eternal life, right? It just shuts them up. I've never heard anything like this before. Maybe you're like that this morning. So nations, plural, not just Jews. Men and women from every nation. You're going to see and learn of the Messiah's death. They're going to see and learn about a death that bore the sins of the world. A death which would bring cleansing and sprinkling and atonement. Men and women from every nation, every tribe, every language will come to learn something they've never understood. That personal salvation is possible through the Lord's servant who will give himself for the entire world. And that's why John 3 contains John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life and that is how one is born again for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life if you're here this morning and you're not yet a christian how can you have new life how can you have this new birth how can you have that new heart how can you have god's spirit dwelling inside of you how can you be born again believe in jesus christ who died in your place upon the cross trust him and him alone for salvation and the bible says you will never perish but you will have eternal life and then you will be that new creation that new person who will have access to that new kingdom and that new eden so in conclusion my third time i've said that we're ending, but this time it's true. With that, Jesus' death, uh, with that, I should say, Jesus dealt with everything that Nicodemus, everything that was preventing Nicodemus from understanding how to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus removed the veil uh, which Nicodemus's man-made traditions had laid over uh, his vision of Scripture. He dealt with that, the man-made traditions. He dealt with the, the filter through which Nicodemus was reading the scriptures. He did this helping Nicodemus to see that the very text which foretold the kingdom also foretold the need for those who would enter the kingdom to be transformed by the Spirit. Jesus also eliminated any sense of self-righteousness which may have prevented Nicodemus from seeing the need to be born again because he says eternal life comes to those who believe in the Son, not those who work, not those who are self-righteous. Cleansing and forgiveness by the grace of God upon faith in Jesus is what saves, not human works. Jesus also eliminated any thoughts of national pride or national entitlement which may have led Nicodemus to think he was just going to waltz right in because of his Jewishness. No, instead, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, this is an individual salvation for men and women from all over the globe, uh, these will have eternal life. And so it's not good good works, it's not ethnicity, it's not nationality. What determines entrance into the kingdom of God is whether or not one has believed in Jesus. It's that God-given faith which results in one being born again. So, what about Nicodemus? The last thing he says here, I think, is 
how can these things be? That's it. And then narrative takes over. John the Apostle uh, describes the situation. Uh, but that's his final words in this, in this text is, how can these things be? And that's it. And you wish Nicodemus, so Jesus just pulled the veil back for you here. So why not be saved, Nicodemus? Why not believe? But we're just left with, how can these things be? Well, thankfully, that's not where Scripture ends. Because if you're to fast forward all the way to the crucifixion of Jesus, in John 19, we read this. After Christ has died upon the cross, he's borne the sins of the world. It says, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away, and so they want to take the bodies off the cross. So Jesus was crucified between two criminals, and so they want these bodies off the cross because their Sabbath day is coming and they don't want these bodies on the cross. And so go and break the legs to expedite the death process, right? Uh, but they come to Jesus, they find he's, he's already dead, so they don't break his legs, which was a fulfillment of prophecy. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other uh, and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now listen, verse 38. And after these things, Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away the body. And so Joseph of Arimathea has been a secret disciple. He hasn't let anybody know. He's kind of still there in the, in the shadows, in the darkness. But after Jesus dies, Joseph has that boldness to come forward into the light and say, here I am, I'm a disciple of Jesus, and he actually takes care of the body. But then in verse 39, Nicodemus also. Nicodemus also, who earlier came to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so Nicodemus, who first came to Jesus by night, now comes into the light. That self-righteous skeptic now emerges into the daylight as a faith-filled disciple of Jesus. This Nicodemus, who was once trusting his own good works and once blinded by his own tradition, has experienced new life. In other words, it appears as if, at this point, Nicodemus has been born again. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you do the work that you did in Nicodemus' life, that you would tear down the veil of tradition, you would tear down the veil of self-righteousness, you would tear down the veil of ethnic pride, anything that's keeping us from seeing your word as written, anything that's keeping us from seeing salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ, um, I pray that you would help some this morning to understand their need to be saved. Help them to see their need for new birth, renewal, and that nothing, no good works, no ethnicity, no background, no pedigree, none of this aids in salvation in any way, but only faith in Jesus and he alone. So I pray that you'd remove the veil from our eyes, help us to see that, any who are here who are not yet saved. And then, Lord, those who are Christians, help us to deeply appreciate what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Help us be reminded that this work that the Lord has done in us was not on the basis of our works, but for his own glory and his own holiness. Help us understand the miracle of the new birth and what he has done in us by 
giving us his spirit and by renewing us of the inside. And so, Lord, we give you all the praise and all the glory for any spiritual life, any evidence of that spiritual life, the life of faith that we walk, that we live, is all the result of your work, and we give you all the glory for it, Lord. We thank you for this. We pray that you would save souls and that some would come to be born again. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.